What's going on, everybody? I'm Jeff St. Pierre, and this is episode 94 of the Adult Education Podcast. This week, I'm speaking with journalist and author Marissa R. Moss. Thanks for hanging out today. I do appreciate you taking some time out of your day to listen to the show. Adult education is a fun project for me that I just do out of the love of conversation and learning. If you want to support me or the show, there's two great ways to do that. One of them is to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Also, if you like what you hear in today's episode, please share it with your friends, whether that's by telling people to listen or sharing it via social media. Just let the word spread about adult education. First of all, let me uh, apologize for not posting an episode last week. I sat down to edit this one that you're about to hear, and then I saw the news about the tragedy in Uvalde, Texas. In that moment, I just couldn't get my head in the right place to sit down and, and listen to the conversation and edit. I just was in a weird place. I had so many thoughts and feelings, that, and none of them were really making me feel motivated. So I don't know if you've ever had that feeling. It's it's just hard for me to describe, but I just felt like nothing I did mattered because there were other much more important things that needed to be done. So I apologize for not getting that out there. So here we are a week later. I've got a little more mental clarity, and I hope that you do as well. Obviously, at the time that I'm posting this, nothing has changed to stop these tragedies from happening, but I am at least encouraged by the conversations that are happening, and I'm keeping my fingers crossed that we can find some sort of solution here soon. So let's jump into this week's episode. I am very excited and, and kind of nervous about this one, actually. I'm excited because it's not often that I get to go toe-to-toe with another music fan that can keep up with me. I'm speaking with journalist Marissa R. Moss. She recently published a book that looks at the struggles and successes of women in the world of country music. It's called Her Country, How the the women of country music became the success story they were never supposed to be. A really interesting book, fascinating subject. I love talking to Marissa, but why am I nervous? You might be asking. I'm nervous because Marissa has a lot of issue with the way country music radio works, and rightfully so. But I work in country radio for my main job, and I'm not one to beat around the bush. So Marissa and I speak rather candidly about some things my industry does that have hurt female artists over the years. I'm a little nervous that I could get me into trouble with the powers that be uh, if they are listening to this. But like I said, I'm not going to lie to her. You know, if what I'm saying bothers some people in power, then Maybe they should do something to change the reality of our situation. That's the way that I look at it. Anyway, enjoy my conversation with Marissa R. Moss. Pivoting really quick because my daughter is having a day. So, Oh, no. <laughs> is she asleep? Nope. She's uh, enjoying Encanto and having lunch with me right now. So, <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. We're, we're, I don't know if I told you we're shifting to the one nap a day schedule right now. So everything, like all bets are off, right? Like some days she'll do like a solid two to three hour nap in the middle of the day like we need. And then some days it's like 15 minutes and she's up for the rest of the day. And I'm like, who are you? What is this person? (laughs) My daughter dropped all naps at like two years old. Um, I think because, you know, she wanted to be awake when my son was awake. And I think she's still tired like four (laughs) years later. (laughs) I'm dreading that day because I I work from home. I, I do a morning radio show in an office, and then I come home and I'm daddy daycare the rest of the day, which I love. But that's when I can do other things like this, these opportunities with people like you. So I rely on these naps to get my other stuff done. But we'll see. We'll have a good time with it. Yeah, I miss I miss that nap. Like I remember when I just had one, having that period where you could just like chill out for a minute it was so nice. But Different times. Yeah. Well, if you see me look off the screen, I promise you I'm still paying attention to you. I'm just making sure there's food on the table. That's all I'm Oh, doing. gosh. I <laughs> I have been there so many times. So 
<laughs> it's nice I, to see a dad doing uh, doing this role. Well, as a parent, I know you understand my position. So, um, Marissa, I, I am I am excited to have this conversation. Primarily, well, a the book is really good, but also because I think I'm coming to you from the radio side of things. So I think I offer maybe a different perspective than a lot of other people that are going to read this book and enjoy it. And I, I'm excited to have this conversation with you because I think you point out so many incredible flaws about our industry uh, that people don't necessarily talk about. So I, I appreciate that you're that you're doing that. I'm glad that you're willing to have that conversation. I mean, that's rare. We need more. We need more people like that. I mean, it may work uh, against me. I don't know. We'll see what happens. (laughs) We'll keep you out of trouble. We'll keep it neutral, you know? (laughs) I guess luckily I'm the one that's recording this so I can edit it if I need to. (laughs) Yeah. We're not trying to get anyone in trouble, you know? (laughs) I also love that you wrote this book because I know you have a long history with country music and you've been following it and studying it, if you want to call it that, for so long. So many people that write things like this generally I feel have no connection to country music. And when I read it, I think to myself, who are you? Like, why do you think you can say this about our industry? Like you, you're watching it from afar, you know, to your friends, you may say you don't even like country music, but yet you still have a very strong opinion about country music. So I love that you're the voice on this because I can trust your voice. I believe you when you're telling me the story. Thank you. Yeah, that was really important to me. You're right. I mean, I've read so many country music books of like, written by people that think that because they came to Nashville for a couple months and reported here and then went back to New York, like they're suddenly the expert on this topic. You know, I've lived here for over a decade and and love country music for much longer than that. So I hope that that like love and commitment to country music comes through. Yeah. I mean, I, I think from reading your book compared to others, there's so much um, is personality the right word? I'm not really sure if that's the right word, but there's so much in it where you can tell that the writer, you, loves what they're doing. Like you can tell the person telling the story feels a passion for these for these characters, like feels for this, this story that you're putting out there. Oh, I love that. I, I hope that comes through and that's really rewarding that, uh, that you pick that up. I'm going to use a word here that I also like that you tackle with country music and authenticity is the word because I... <laughs> Uh, I've been saying to myself for so long, I know everybody likes to say that country music is authentic, but I've always said it's such a crock of shit at the same time because you'll have people that I know grew up in gated communities living in multi-million dollar mansions singing about riding tractors through cornfields. And I'm like, you've never even seen a tractor before. So how can you sing this song? And I know it's an image, but it's just so funny to me that authenticity is what we hang our hat on when so much of it is not authentic at all. Yeah, I mean, authenticity is such a silly word, right? And we use it so much relating to country music. And I mean, Gillian Welch was from New York City and in LA and you know who cares like you can sing your truth from anywhere and and I like tradition I'm interested in the tradition of country music and traditional sounds and and I understand how meaningful country music can be for people in in the country in rural America and I think that's all super valid and important but that conversation around authenticity is um is really exhausting and often wielded in like very kind of unfair ways. So talking about tradition, 
country music goes back. I mean, if you really want to look at the roots, it goes back arguably more, but you know, close to a hundred years ago to where people would really start calling something country, but you chose to focus more on about the last 20 ish years or so. So why, why did you make that decision in writing this book? Yeah. I mean, there's not a lot of music books that are especially, you know, about country music, I think that are rooted in the present really. I mean, they're very few. I really wanted to make a document of the past 20 years to serve as like an alternate story to what you'll see if you look at the Billboard airplay charts. Um, so that's part of the picture, but it's not the whole picture. You know, there's a lot of women that are making country music that is finding its audience and finding their audience in a different way than country radio. Um, so I wanted to document that. And and I did want it to document country music in a way that was very much living in the present. I thought that was important um, for being considered as, you know, as sort of a really important part of popular culture and, and even sort of as high art, um, because I love country music and I don't think it's always appreciated as high art kind of in the, in the wider scheme of things. And, and I thought rooting it very much in the present would help me make that case for this is, you know, this is as an important part of our current culture um, as, you know, pop music or, or anything else going on. So that was kind of my reasoning for making it so kind of rooted in, in recent history. It's funny too, because when I think about 20 years as a number and the years you're talking about, you know, the book really starts around 2000, 2001 is when it really kind of kicks in when you're talking about Maren Morris and Casey Musgraves and, and Mickey Guyton. But when I think like when I was a teenager in the 90s, 20 years was the 70s. So I'd be reading books about Led Zeppelin or whatever from back then. And it seemed like so ages ago. But right now, 2001 doesn't seem like that long ago to me. And maybe it's because of my age. But it's funny to think about like that is history. 20 years ago, my wife's a teacher in middle school. There are kids that she has in her class that were not even born when so much mm -hmm. of this book even takes place. So it's it's fascinating to me to like try to wrap my head around that. And that could just be because I'm getting older. I don't know. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, I'm right there with you you know um we're always like uh, that album came out five years ago and really it was like 30 right. and you're like oh wow time is flying by a little too fast that's uncomfortable <laughs> so I, I will admit i have not finished the book i'm a painfully slow reader but i once i start reading it i'm just like oh my gosh i can't put this down until my daughter forces me to put it down for something um but let me ask you this question where would you like to start in this conversation is there a place that you that you think maybe gets underserved in these interviews that you do, or is there a place that you think would be a great way to kick off the conversation? Mm, good question. I mean, first off, uh, the fact that you could get through any book with a kid at home, I mean, even like a chapter of it, I had a hard enough time rereading my own book with kids at home. So, you know, don't apologize for not finishing it. <laughs> Making it through any of it is a enormous feat with kids at home. Um, I think it's really interesting to, a, a lot of people gravitate towards the provocative themes of the book and, and those are really important. Um, but also really important to me was just telling these women's stories because we do often focus on the challenges and, and, and all those other things that um, maybe make bigger headlines, but we sometimes lose the stories of just how they developed as artists. And that was really important for me to bring into this book. You know, so we're not just focusing on the hardships. Um, I obviously wanted to include it, it was super important, but I wanted to show how these women have been committed to music since they were little kids and um, have been at it for, you know, 
almost the entirety of their lives and and just kind of tell that whole story of the development of an artist. And that was important to me too. Sometimes that, gets lost, I guess. That was really interesting because I I think a lot of us, even as a music fan, I think a lot of us just think like, wow, artists just pop up and here they are, this amazingly talented artist. So to really take a deep dive into the history of these women and to find out how much they have been doing from such a young age. I mean, the fact that Casey Musgraves was performing at the inauguration in 2001, yeah. it's just, it's fascinating that she had like a duo, you know, a little, a little duo when she was a kid and Mara Moore is playing bars and clubs in Texas. I know Texas is a whole different world when it comes to country music, but it's just, it's fascinating to think of where they were able to cut their teeth and how they did it. Yeah. I love that. And I loved exploring all those stories and yeah, just thinking about little like 11 year old Casey Musgrave singing at the Bush inauguration. Like, I mean, it's wild to me. And she knew so clearly then what she wanted to do, um, who she was even then. And, you know, like you said, Marin, you know, playing at dance halls and honky tonks with, you know, 40, 50 year old, you know, dudes, Texas players, and just like holding her own with a guitar. That's like a, bigger than her body. Um, and Mickey, you know, starting so young, seeing Leanne Rhymes at a baseball game and just kind of instantly knowing this is what she wanted to do. Um, and obviously encountering a, a whole lot of hardship along the way. I really loved getting into those stories and I wanted to make sure those were, you know, that was a good part of what people came away with was these aren't women that just kind of, you know, were showed up on the scene or were created, you know, by record labels or whatever people like to think they have been at this for their whole lives and were kind of born to do it. And the main characters of the book are Casey Musgraves, Marin Morris, Mickey Guyton, but you don't just stop there. I mean, throughout the book, yes, you're following their journey, but you also talk about everything else that's going on. There's a lot written about the chicks and Leanne Rhymes mm -hmm. and Shania Twain gets brought up a lot as well and many other artists as well. But so it's not like you just sat down and said, these are the three stories I'm telling. And that's it. You give the whole story that wraps around all those moments too. Yeah, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to get in as much as I could without overwhelming people and, um, <laughs> and making it hard to follow. But obviously the chicks and Miranda Lambert and Leanne Rhymes and Brandy Clark um, coming to present day with, you know, Brittany Spencer. I wanted to get that whole kind of arc of, of all these different artists and the way that they've interacted with, um, each other's careers and their meaningful moments in country music. Um, and sometimes it's only, you know, you could only get a line or two in there, but I hope that that would inspire curiosity and people to go down different, you know, kind of wormholes and stuff. One thing that's always fascinated me about the chicks, first of all, the raw deal, but we don't have to talk about that <laughs> too much, but <laughs> that there are people that I see people that I'll come in contact with at events that will still complain about the fact that we play them. And sometimes these people are 20, 25 years old. And I'm like, you weren't even old enough to understand what happened when it happened. And you're mad about like, I don't understand the anger that has carried over for so long. I can maybe put myself in their shoes for like a hot second and think it was a volatile time. There was a lot going on. I could see someone that's just super pro America being like, okay, I'm mad at these women for saying what they said but I'm pretty sure I would have gotten over it pretty quick and been like, all right, <laughs> yeah. I get it. But the fact that here we are 20 years later and I still get phone calls from people yelling at me that we're playing the chicks on the radio. It's, it's fascinating. It's so fascinating to me, maddening and fascinating. 
Yeah. I mean, well, first off, good, good on you for playing them um, because not everyone does. And uh, it's a huge loss. You know, if you remove everything out of it, it's just awesome country music. I mean, they're so good. (laughs) Um, But I think it goes to show you that that whole moment and what happened with the chicks, if it's trickling down to someone who wasn't even around when it happened or wasn't even, you know, was still eating mushed up foods, um, I think it shows you that it wasn't ever really about them. Mm-hmm. You know, it was about making this, this deeper point and, and uh, holding on to something that they felt like was disappearing or controlling women with power and with the point of view. Um, and we still see that in the climate today. I just think it's such a shame, you know, like at the end of the day, just it, it's great music. It's great country music and it sounds good you know, driving down the road, coming through your speakers. Like it's, we just suffer from that loss. You know, I get a, I get a, a sick pleasure out of scheduling the chicks back to back with Morgan Wallen. Cause I love <laughs> to, I love to think about the person in their car that they hear Morgan Wallen and they think I hate cancel culture. It's so stupid. And they like, well, how, why are they playing the chicks? That's ridiculous. <laughs> That's brilliant. Oh my God. I love that. <laughs> it's my own little sick feeling that I get out of that. But you know, you do talk about in the book about how it seems like, and forgive me if I'm not wording this correctly, but it seems like women were kind of eliminated from country radio by design. And if I know one thing about my company, my industry, if it's going to make money, they're going to do it. It doesn't matter what it is. It's hard for me to picture say back in you know the early 2000s when you had people like the chicks that were so massively popular or Shania Twain even though she may have been coming down from that high in the late 90s and Faith Hill the same thing they were still massive stars it's hard for me to believe that they would just say yeah we're done with them because they were bringing in so much revenue at least I would imagine they were I mean just the exposure alone must have brought the focus on country music a lot more than anybody else was doing yeah I mean that's something that I really get stuck on too, because, you know, at the end of the day, we're all in a capitalist society and everyone's just trying to make money, um, even in the business of art. But I mean, we got into this thing, you know, there's so many other elements at play, I guess, going on, especially with the chicks, but with women, once they started to dwindle from the airwaves, people weren't used to hearing women's voices anymore. So that you know, that sort of adage going around saying that, you know, either women don't like to hear women or people turn the dial when they hear women, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy because they weren't being played. So that became true. And then that's really hard to break out of. And then that's where, you know, money's back on the table again, and you're taking a risk if you're playing a woman. And that's, that's where we have some really difficult work ahead of us, I think. Oh, for sure. And there's something else you talk about in the book too, which I've had a lot of conversations with. And let me tell you this. I I think the research that radio stations do of their audience is incredibly flawed. Like there's, I don't even know what the perfect way to get it done is going to be, but the way we do it is flawed in a million different ways. But if we are strictly looking at the data and looking at the numbers, oftentimes women just don't research as well as men. And I think that goes to your point. We people are not as used to hearing female voices. So it becomes harder for them to accept might not be the right word, but I think you know what I'm getting with that. So yeah. it, it it does, it does, it has created an issue where like you look at it and I would think, oh my gosh, all I want to do is play Marin Morris on the radio. I could play her all day long and I would be happy and satisfied. But when I look at the layout of the numbers that I'm given from our audience, it's like, 
it seems to me like they don't want to hear Marin Morris ever. And that's a bad example because people do like her, but to go with the storyline here. So it's, it's very difficult to separate some of that sometimes. Yeah. It's, it's easy to place blame or accountability on just one person. And, you know, there's some easy scapegoats, I think, but it's not that simple at all. You know, like you said, I mean, the, the testing in and of itself is, is super flawed and it's a pretty wonky thing to talk about. So I won't bore folks too much with it. <laughs> that was what my, my, my book agent kept saying to me. She's like, don't get too wonky when you're writing this. You don't want to bore people. Um, don't talk too much about the telecommunications act, but yeah, I mean, we've, we've created this climate where women's voices and women's stories and even different voices and different stories of all kinds are kind of have become foreign to the ear of the country music listener. So then you do get in that place where women aren't testing well, because the audience, you know, you're, I mean, I don't have to tell you, but you're in, you know, you're in the car and you're turning on the radio and you're driving to work. You want to hear stuff that, you know, and makes you feel good and you're familiar with. And we've created this climate where women are not part of that. There's a lot of blame to go around for how we ended up there. It's not just um, one person or the other as easy as it is to simplify it that way. And it's going to take an incredible amount of work to get out of that, I think. I do think it's starting to shift. And I say that because earlier this morning, just to be prepared for this conversation, I did a quick like deep dive into our most recent research figures just out of curiosity. And I, I looked at, you know, where songs were scoring, uh, how the men rated them, how the women rated them. And again, traditionally, we have seen in a lot of situations that women will rate women much harsher than men. And that's such an unfortunate thing, but we do see that happen. But in the currents that we have, the current singles, you know, things like Carly Pierce and Ashley McBride and, and Maren Morris and Miranda Lambert, the women are overwhelmingly rating them so much higher right now. And they are doing very well. And I thought, well, good. This is a good sign that it seems like maybe, to your point, the having more voices, again, still a lot of work to do, but having more voices on the radio right now than we have seen in a lot of other years it's starting to feel more familiar to hear that female voice and it's being more accepted again. Yeah. I mean, I hope so. I mean, it's still, it's still a very small percentage sure. for sure. And uh, you know, I'm always going to be that wet blanket. <laughs> so, no, I mean, But you're right. I mean, you're yeah. absolutely right about that. It is a small percentage, 100%, but at least to think about the fact that we just had a female duo hit the number yeah. one spot on the chart. Like I, I just think that's, that's such a, a good sign of where things can go, at least in my opinion. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you can't not feel excited about that. I mean, Ashley McBride should have had a number one song, um, <laughs> you know, a couple of years ago. But if you put that aside, it is exciting to see that happen. Um, and you hope that it's just going to be more, um, you know, that women's voices, because as silly as it sounds, become more familiar and comforting and, um, and all those things that I know women's voices can be as, as not just a woman, but a fan of country music. Um, obviously this music speaks to me and, and, uh, in a multitude of ways, but yeah, it's not just an overnight thing. And it's not just something that you can turn a switch on and change and, uh, like all systemic issues that it, it makes it very, um, you know, difficult to solve, but it doesn't mean that it's not worth trying. In the book, you kind of talk about how there have been times in our history, especially in the early 2000s, um, where country music has been used as sort of a political tool. 
and it's been used by pundits to hammer home some point. And it seems like the men jump on board with that a lot faster or a lot easier than women do, uh, or their voices just tend to be louder for some reason. And I I wonder, I, I don't really know what the question is, but I wonder why that is. Like, I wonder why people allow that to happen. Like, you're going to take my music and turn it into a tool for your campaign or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. It's an interesting thing to think about. Um, and I guess it goes down, you know, it comes down to a bit of the patriarchy and who we think as being a uh, a patriotic person or um is able to sing with, you know, a convincing passion. And I guess uh, men have tef- have been thought of as, as holding those roles. And I mean, around 9-11, when a lot of those patriotic songs came out, women had been up until that point singing, you know, ballads and doing pop crossovers. Sure. So sort of immediately they were not in that lane and the lane that they had been in was working, you know, pretty well. Um, and all of a sudden, that was difficult, I think, for people to program. Like, how do you program this big uh, pop moment right next to, you know, this patriotic sort of mournful or, or aggressive moment? It's pretty difficult, I think. So women found themselves in that position, too, of like doing something that was entirely outside of what was um, kind of the vibe at the moment. Men really got up speed really fast. When you talk about programming, there's something else you reference in the book uh, quite a few times about how there's this rule that floats around country radio where you don't play two women back to back. And I'll tell you, as recently as just a few years ago, when I started scheduling music for our radio station, that rule was handed down to me um, Mm. from people. And I still hear people talk about it today. I don't subscribe to that rule. I think it's crap. I don't like to schedule a lot of things back to back that sound very similar. Like I wouldn't put Carrie Underwood and Gabby Barrett back to back because they have a very similar sound. Same way I wouldn't put Rascal Flatts and Dan and Shea back to back because they also sound very similar. Uh, But I I just, I, I think it's, sometimes I think we overthink where the audience's head is. And I think that's such a silly way to do it. Go, oh, God forbid you have two women back to back there are so many women that sound so different from each other. It's not like you're playing two ballads back to back or whatever. You're playing just artists. Yeah. I mean, if you play like Miranda Lambert, if I was a cowboy next to, you know, a little dive bar and Dahlonega from Ashley McBride, you're talking about two entire, like they're just two entirely different songs. Maybe that was a bad example because I was trying to probably find something a little more upbeat, but anyway. <laughs> But I mean, first off, thank you for admitting that you have heard that because I've spoken to a lot of people on radio that refuse to acknowledge that they have been passed down that no women back to back rule. And I think, you know, we can't really make any progress if we don't account for reality. And it's really important to say that that is that is part of the truth of what people hear when they get into country radio programming, that that's part of the gospel. And once you admit that it's, you know, exists, then you can change it, I think. But yeah, I mean, like you said, it's not, you know, assuming that all women's voices sound the same is really makes me very angry and is very dangerous. There's no reason why you can't play two women back to back that have different tempos in their music. You know, I heard someone recently 
complaining about all the duets that we have right now because it's male-female duets. And they were talking about how they're finding it so difficult to schedule music because they can't put two females back-to-back. But meanwhile, you have all of these male-female duets. They're like, I don't know what to do. And I said, just schedule them. That's what you do. Like, there's no, I don't understand why this is an issue for you. But uh, apparently whoever is you know, overseeing them or watching them closely. Maybe I'm lucky because I don't necessarily have the same you know, intense oversight uh, that other people do. But, uh, but yeah, I just, I, it, it boggles my mind why that would be an issue today. That is crazy. Um, it's just crazy. It just, I have few words about that. <laughs> well, I can tell through talking to you that you're a music fan at heart and I'm, and I'm the same way. So sometimes I have to separate, like, I know you're a big fan of the Marfa tapes. I've heard you talk about that before, mm-hmm. which I think is a brilliant album in so many ways, but not really a standard audience album. You know what I mean? Like the basic right. person tuning in the radio, maybe not the kind of artsy thing they're looking to hear that day. I think we can both recognize that. So it's yeah. hard for me sometimes to separate my music fandom from what I have to do as far as playing for the umbrella audience, because you have to think about all the different people that fit into uh, that umbrella that's going to hear what you play on the radio. And, and they're not all big music fans. Some of them are just hopping in the car and want a distraction while they're driving to work. So maybe yeah. they aren't looking for that cool hip song. They're looking for your standard Luke Bryan, Blake Shelton, whatever. And it's so difficult sometimes for me to separate that that aspect because I think, Oh, everybody must like this. I like it, but that's not real. That's not true. Yeah. I love the Marfa tapes, but I'm not, you know, I wouldn't expect anyone to play a super stripped down acoustic song by the campfire on country radio. I get that. You know, I don't, I think I have a pretty realistic expectation about what would work. Um, And I think that's why I get really angry when there is something that would work really well. That's not given a chance at all, you know, and I think that happens a lot with Mickey Guyton. She's making, you know, music that works in a very contemporary mainstream country kind of way. And she's not getting recognized on country radio, but yeah, we just need, you know, I would love a sort of like, you know, more forums, you know, maybe like a new sub format or something where you could play, you know, you could play the Marfa tapes and Sergio Simpson or something, you know. Mickey, give me some money, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you can go plan that. Uh, Somebody give me money. Mickey Guyton is a fascinating example because she is an incredible talent. And I remember this very vividly. I went to CRS in 2020. This is right before the pandemic hit. So we're like a month out from everything shutting down. Mickey Guyton performs. I, I forget what song it was at this point, but she performed and got a standing applause from all of the overwhelmingly white male program directors that were in the room. And I just stood there with a friend of mine. I thought, this is really exciting for Mickey. Unfortunately, not a single one of them is going to play her music. And it's such a heartbreaking thought to have. But at the same time, and I've said this to my friends at her record label, they've literally never shipped a single to radio. Like Mm -hmm. I've in all of the press that she's gotten, she's hosted award shows in the last year. She's been on TV like she performed on the Today Show Plaza. And the record label never came with a single. And I thought, well, what are you waiting for? Now is your time to get out on this Mickey Guyton train. Give us some, because that's how radio works. If people are listening, like we don't just pick the songs we play generally. It's the radio stations and the record labels get together and say, this is a song we think is going to work. We're all going to get behind this song. And that's kind of how the business works. 
and they've never come with a Mickey song. I just, I, it blows my mind why they're not doing it. That moment at CRS when she sang that song, what are you going to tell her? Is that, um, that's what it was? Okay, yeah. Yeah, it's in the book, so you'll you'll get there. I haven't gotten there yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's it's towards the end. You'll get there when, uh, you know, when your kid's 16 years old. Trust me, that's the pace that you'll read, <laughs> you know, at least for me. Um, but yeah, I've heard that from a lot of folks in radio, that they're they're very frustrated because radio gets all of the blame. You know, people will sort of say, hey, radio, how come you're not playing this Mickey Guyton song? And the label gets to kind of look a little innocent, you know, like we did the work, you know, here we released this record, but really it's not getting promoted to you in the same way that, you know, the new Dustin Lynch record is. And then it's automatically getting shipped as a single and he's doing the radio tour and he's getting, you know, the huge promo push. Um, that's not being uh, allotted to Mickey or a lot of women in country music. Um, and I, I, you know, go to some links to point that out in the book too, because it's not, um, it's not just one side at fault here and labels really do need to get behind, you know, they can sort of, um, give good face about supporting women and, uh, you know, an artist of color and queer artists, but if they're not putting those promo budgets and, you know, getting the radio promo teams behind them the same way they do their male artists, um, then that's just kind of hollow rhetoric, you know? I think there was a piece of me that I, again, I do not think my industry is perfect by any means. There's a lot of problems in the radio industry, but there were a lot of times where I was like, I don't think that that's really our fault. Like, I think there's a lot more pieces. So to hear you reference that talking about how it's, it isn't just a one, a one pronged problem. There's a lot of people at play here that made me feel a little bit better because I was like, I really feel like we're under attack in this. And it's not, it's not all radio, you know, and I know I'm one piece of the puzzle. So maybe my opinion is different than a lot of other people. I'm sure there are folks, I know there are program directors that refuse to play Maren Morris because she airs her political beliefs on social media. I think it's an absurd reason to not play her music because it's incredible stuff, but that's their prerogative. That's what they want to do. But I just, it's not all radio that's holding everybody back. Like there are other pieces at play. Yeah. And I think it's so convenient. Um, and I've been saying this for years, but I think it's so convenient for everyone to just place heaps of blame on one person. Cause then they can say, you know, well, it's not me, you know, we're doing our thing. It's not me. Um, and there's so many places to look and, and, different roles that everyone has and in, in keeping us kind of in the same place. I mean, Mickey didn't release a radio for a uh, release an album for a decade. Yeah. That's her, that's on her label, you yeah. know, <laughs> but I mean, radio also didn't play her single better than you left me in, in 2015. And there's just a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of blame to go around and maybe blame is even a harsh word. There's a lot of responsibility yeah. to be taken and accepted in order to get to a different outcome. And I don't think anyone is really wanting to do that. It's difficult to like, look at yourself and say where you've, you know, screwed up or held up oppression or any of those things. Um, but it's, you know, it's pretty necessary. And if country music wants to stay vibrant and relevant, like it has to encounter, you know, it has to take in these challenges head on or like, you know, what's going to happen 10 years from now. I don't want this to sound too harsh for anybody that's listening, but I hope you understand where the question is coming from. So we talk about how radio doesn't play 
females. And we've talked about how uh, country music can be politicized. Sometimes it can be used as a tool uh, to make a point happen. Uh, they can cancel the, the chicks, if you will. I hate using that term, but they can take the chicks off the air and people agree with that decision. They they you know root for it. They cheer for it. But yeah, we still think the audience wants these things and radio or the record labels are making a mistake by not giving. Is it possible the audience is that shallow? Like, is it possible the audience <laughs> is like, I, I, I know that sounds really awful to say, but is it possible that they are believing what's coming their way and that's and that's what they want? Like, is that a possible scenario? I don't know. You know, I mean, I don't want to think that it is. Like, yeah. I don't want to think that it is. But it, but when you look at the history of all these things happening and you see how easily they happen, how much they work, how successful the plans can be. When it happens, you're like, you sometimes have to look back at it and go, well, maybe that's what they're looking for. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think it becomes sort of like, a, I'll, I'll resist getting too specifically political on here, but when there's say uh, something that happens in our, in our politics, like a, a, a bill or a ruling or something like that, and you'll read a newspaper and you'll say, this happened despite the overwhelming public uh, embrace of XYZ or lack of embrace for, of XYZ. And you'll say, how does that happen that, you know, 75% of the American public supports yada, yada, and yet we're moving away from that. And I think that kind of could mirror country radio a little bit too. in these things that happen where like, you know, the minority of folks can often be the loudest folks. And, and that happened a lot with the chicks is that the coalition to, you know, sort of quote, cancel them happened on these chat rooms and, and the anger got really loud and it was really sexy for the press to cover it too. So that kept happening. And, uh, and meanwhile, you know, a lot of people still wanted to listen to the chicks, you know, but maybe it wasn't a, a popular thing to say out loud or, um, I, I talked to a couple of radio programmers who were programming, you know, playing the chicks at the time, uh, one of them who was out in LA and he was telling me how they would play the chicks and then they would get these, you know, calls kind of like, you you know, people so angry and it became to him very clear that these weren't chicks fans or country music fans. They were just very angry people um, who maybe felt like they're, you know, they weren't being heard or culture was shifting in a different way than their beliefs. Um, and it was kind of ending up with the chicks, you know, it wasn't country fans calling. And I thought that was so interesting that it was like, it was just a, you know, people sort of using this moment as a vehicle and not just country fans. The squeaky wheel gets the grease is the point that you're, you know, kind of making. And it's so fascinating to me. I'm not picking on this guy cause I love this guy, but uh, I get, I don't even know how, how many, five to 10 requests a day for Scotty McCreary. And I love Scotty. He's such a nice human being, or at least all of my experience, he's been very kind. But I realize these are not all necessary, necessarily Scotty fans. They're American Idol fans that log into his online service and they send these requests to every radio station around the country. So you, you, you'd think in one respect, there are thousands of people trying to hear Scotty McCreary every day. And maybe there are, but at the same time, like these militant fans, they don't even live in Baltimore where I live. They live somewhere else. They're just sending these requests to every country radio station they can possibly imagine. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think Scotty's great too. So, um, but yeah, that happens with Carrie yes. too. Yeah. Some of those, those, I'm not going to say anything because it's a little scary sometimes, <laughs> you know, <laughs> 
We do a feature on our morning show sometimes. It's called a single smackdown where we put two songs on Twitter and let you vote for which song you want to hear. And we play the winner back every day. And it's random, like if it's somebody's birthday or whatever. And if we ever, God forbid, we ever put a Carrie Underwood song in there, the fans tear us apart. Like, stop making women fight for air. Like, we're not making them fight for airplay. It's just, it's Carrie's birthday. And these are our two favorite Carrie songs. We want to know which one you like better. And we'll play the winner. (laughs) It's not a battle of like making her fight for a slot. Like, I, I don't, <laughs> but the fans for Carrie are massive it's and what, rabid. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, they, they can be very mean. <laughs> they can. <laughs> I've got a lot of very hateful emails from them before. And I'm like, I love yeah. Carrie. I don't know why. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I, I'm sure Carrie would not endorse any of that. Uh, they, you know, a lot of passion. I like to, I like to think she would also not endorse that, but Hey, uh, Marissa, this is just such a great piece of work. I'm so glad we got a chance to talk because I, there were so many things I just wanted to run through with you, uh, about this, giving, given my perspective from where I sit sometimes, but really awesome that you point these things out. I hope people see them. I hope it changes some minds. Um, because it's just, I don't know. It, it is, it's heartbreaking sometimes to see, how hard these women have to fight and how successful they can be without getting the love from country radio. I mean, I know Casey Musgraves has kind of shifted more into the pop world, but gosh, those first couple of country albums were so damn good. And we never really got a chance to give them a shot. Like dime store cowgirls, still one of my all time favorite songs. I love so that. My daughter was dancing to it the other day, like in the house. <laughs> and it's, just, it's such a, and I'm like, why was this not a song that we got behind? But that's, the machine, I suppose. Yeah. And thank you for, you know, wanting to be a part of this conversation because, you know, I know everyone in radio loves radio and country music dearly, you know, at the the programming level, at the DJ level. And, you know, I think it's really exciting to see you want to be a part of this conversation too. And so thank you for that. And, you know, shout out to Baltimore. Got a lot of family <laughs> in Baltimore. <laughs> oh yeah. You mentioned that you, you had a relative that was on the radio in Baltimore. Was it your dad? I do. My grandfather, grandfather. had a, a show on, on public radio in Baltimore for many years. And my dad's from Baltimore. Nice. My husband's from Baltimore. So shout out Baltimore. That's awesome. There's a lot of Baltimoreans <laughs> down in Nashville for some reason. I'm not really sure what happened, but there's been a, a big rush of people that have moved down there. Yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure what it is. We'll Good have taste, to get, I guess. have to get an yeah. Orioles minor league team down there or something to help keep the Baltimore love alive. <laughs> yeah. We just went and, uh, we just went and saw, I guess, the AAA team for the, I get it all screwed up, but <laughs> Orioles AAA team. Um, my son is an Orioles fan because of my husband. He was very excited. So, you know, it's awesome. Trying awesome. to find it where we can. Well, Marissa Moss, the book is Her Country, How Women of Country Music Became the Success They Were Never Supposed to Be. Fantastic work. Thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate you. And I hope that our paths cross again sometime soon because I love talking music with you. I love talking with someone that I know can give me an even fight back. (laughs) Yeah, well, likewise. And thank you so much. And uh, it's really meaningful that, uh, you know, you're willing to to have some of the hard conversations sometimes. It shows that you really love music. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Marissa R. Moss, her book, Her Country, How the Women of Country Music Became the Success Story They Were Never Supposed to Be is out now and you can get it wherever you get your books. If you like what you heard today, please share this episode with your friends. And until next time, be well.